So we started back in chapter 1, and the whole theme of the book of Romans is there in 1, 16, and 17. And it starts an interesting way. Paul says, For I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And, and you ask yourself that question. Why does he say, I'm not ashamed? Well, you have to know the world at that time, and you have to know the world today, because the world really hasn't changed. He says, I'm not ashamed, because among the sophisticated, among the elites, among the Greeks and the educated Romans, they would say, ah, so your God allowed himself to be killed? To die a terrible, the, the death of a convicted prisoner on a cross? That, that is your God? And so, so what Paul says in Corinthians is, to the Greeks, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, is pure foolishness. Your God allowed himself to be put to death, really? And then, and then to a Jewish audience, the same thing would be true. It wouldn't be so much foolishness as it would be a stumbling block, which is what... 1 Corinthians 1 says as well. To the Jews, Jesus and the message of the cross is a stumbling block. Why? Because it says they look for signs. And you say, wait a minute. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he gave sign after sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle after miracle. He even raised someone from the dead. He said, but that's not the sign we were looking for we were looking for a Messiah who would deliver us from Roman oppression. Who would establish Israel once again as the head of the nations. And all you're telling us about is a dead Messiah. And there's rumors that maybe he rose from the dead. Now, that's the same today. The message that we have today, the message of Jesus, the message of his crucifixion, the message of even his resurrection, the message of his salvation, the message of the gospel. I was talking to my daughter, and she said, you know, Dad, when, when my generation hears the word gospel, that's not very attractive to them. And I said, it's because they don't understand that they need a savior. Paul did not go to a town, any new town, on a missionary journey, and the first words out of his mouth were not, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Basically, it would come out like this, you are in trouble. <laughs> God, God is very upset with you. The wrath of God is on you. You need a Savior. But here's the good news. A Savior has been provided. 
the salvation that God, that the prophets of Israel spoke about, has come. Now, the interesting thing back in 116, when it talks about salvation, we usually think of that as getting saved, right? We'll say to someone, have you been saved? And the whole idea of that is, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? But salvation is not limited to receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's, that's the entry point. That's the beginning point. And as we saw this morning in the prelude to the service, that's called justification. So we, if you really want to get to the point of have you been saved, and by, by that we mean have you received Jesus, we would ask, have you been justified? Have you been justified? And that's kind of what Paul talks about. Those first, those first three chapters are devoted to Paul showing people, whether they're rebels or moralists or religious people, that they need a Savior. And then the end of chapter uh, 3, Paul says, and, and that Savior has come. And that Savior is Jesus. And that's, he has come to justify you and to pay your debt. But then when he gets to, and then chapter 4, he illustrates it. Remember, we spent lots of time on chapter 4. We went all the way through it. And Paul's illustration of justification is in the life of the man named Abraham. Basically what Paul says is, he was justified one way. He was justified by faith. By faith in God. God made a promise to him, and he believed it. <laughs> he believed that God could actually raise the dead. And, and that's what it means to be justified. It means, it means we believe that Jesus died for our sins. He, he bore the weight. He paid the penalty. He paid our debt. And, and God has spoken that truth, and to the person who believes that, if you will believe that, that Jesus died for you, then you also, like Abraham, you can be justified. And, and as God counted it to Abraham as righteousness, in the same way, you will, you will have it credited to you based on belief, because you believed in the promise of God. That's justification. That's, that's what verse 1 of chapter 5 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That's it. That's what he's talking about. So imagine, Paul goes into a city. He preaches those first four chapters, you know, because this book of Romans is probably a sermon that he preached many times. And over the course of the Sabbaths at the synagogue where he's proclaiming this message, over the course of time, some people actually come to believe. 
So by the time he gets to chapter 5, he says, since we have been. See, he's been spending four chapters saying, you need to. Now he says, since, you know, he shows up, it's about the fourth or fifth weekend, maybe longer. But he looks out over the audience and he recognizes that some of them have actually been justified by faith. So he looks out over them and he says, he says, now then, that's therefore, now then, what's next? What's next? Well, here's what's next. And I have to tell you something. My whole life in the church, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old. My whole life in the church, most of the emphasis on salvation that I've heard and even at times taught has been on justification. Someone once asked me, they said, is every Christian a disciple? I thought long and hard about that. And I said, no. <laughs> no. Every Christian is a Christian, but not every Christian is a disciple. What makes a disciple? Well, this is the, this, the disciple. Here's the three movements of salvation. When Paul talks about salvation, it's a complete salvation he's talking about. He's talking about justification, sanctification, and glorification. So, so justification means I have been delivered from the penalty of God's wrath. Right? Sanctification is I'm being delivered from the power of sin. Slowly, slowly, day by day, decision by decision, moment by moment, trial by trial, I am being sanctified. Now, what does sanctified mean? If something is sanctified. The easiest way for you to understand what sanctification is, sanctification means that Something that has been created is now fulfilling its purpose. That's what sanctification is. These empty chairs, see this row of chairs? We got a lot of unsanctified chairs in this room. Why? Because nobody's in them. Why? Because the reason for making those chairs was so that someone could sit down. But we also have a lot of sanctified chairs here this morning. What does that mean? It means you're sitting on them. If those chairs could talk, they'd go, this is great. And, and what, what happens to us in sanctification is we start to become the people we were made to be. That's what sanctification is. And then finally, someday, you know, someday. So in, in justification, my spirit, my spirit has been saved. In sanctification, essentially, my soul or my personality, John Bell, God is making John Bell into what he had in mind before the foundation of the earth. 
God had something in mind for each one of you to fulfill so that you might be all that he designed you to be. That's what sanctification is. By the way, sanctification happens exactly the same way justification does. It happens by faith. We've talked about this before. There's always an inner war going on inside of John Bell. There's John Bell's old ego, and there's a new creation that he's created me to be, and there's a war in there. And whenever I, by faith, believe what Jesus is telling me to do in that moment, I'm being sanctified. Do you see? And, and, and so, so I'm growing in grace. I'm growing in Christ. I'm becoming mature. And that's the goal, the goal of sanctification. As I said before, the problem in most churches, most churches spend 80% of their time on getting people justified and a very small percentage of their time on helping people to become sanctified. And chapter 5 is all about sanctification. In fact, for, for the next few weeks, this is kind of where we're going we're gonna to spend most of our time on sanctification. On, on helping you become who Christ made you to be. And, and when we come together as a church, I really do believe that that's, that's what we should be doing for one another, helping each other understand. And then... The great thing about glory, you know, you have to make a decision for justification. You have to make a million decisions for sanctification. You don't have to make any decisions at all about glorification. Isn't that great? All you got to do is say, goodbye, everybody. I'm out of here. And absent from the body present with the Lord. So your spirit has been saved, your soul, your personality, you are being saved, and one of these days you will be saved because you will be given an incorruptible, imperishable body, and that's glorification. And then, and then you'll be completely who God designed for you to be. Now, I say all that, I say all that, and this may take a couple weeks. I'm realizing that. This may take a couple weeks. But one of the most important things that can happen to us in, in uh, measuring our sanctification is learning to rejoice. If you want to know where you're at on the maturity scale, if you want to know where you're at with regard to becoming who God intended for you to be, if you want to know where you're at with regard to becoming like Christ, ask yourself this question. Am I learning to rejoice? Am I learning to rejoice? Because here's the fact of the matter. <laughs> and, and this sounds crazy. But Christians are to be in a constant state of rejoicing. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord Sometimes, when things are going well, 
when I get the job I want, when I'm on vacation, after a good meal, ah, that was good. When do I rejoice? Frequently? When do I rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord always. <laughs> so the question is, on the maturity scale, where are you learning to rejoice? And, and these, are, these are painful verses, these verses here, because, because there are three levels... There are three levels in learning to rejoice. The first level is learning to rejoice in your new identity. That's what you received when you came to Christ. You received a whole new identity. I am, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You remember what it was like when you first became a Christian? I was eight, and I was thrilled to death. Some people, it happens when they're 20 or 40. I suppose the happiest person would be someone who was 70 and came to Christ because they almost missed it. They almost spent a lifetime with a false identity. So you rejoice in this new identity. I am a child of God. The second level, we rejoice in our sufferings. And I know what you're thinking at this point. You're, you're saying to yourself, can we go back to level one? Did you just say rejoice in your sufferings? Yes. Yes. And then the third level is finally, we rejoice not just in our identity, not just in our sufferings, we just rejoice in God. <laughs> That's who we rejoice in. We rejoice with God as our friend. We rejoice. If so if someone says, who are you? Say, I'm a friend of God. That's who I am. <laughs> you want to know who I am? I'm a friend of God. That was Abram's claim to fame. He was a friend of God. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples at the end of his ministry? I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. So I, I rejoice just in that relationship. Let's talk first, qu very quickly, our new identity, level one, verses one and two. Therefore, you can put it up there, good. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, you know what a benefits package is, right? Like, you get a benefits package at work, right? This is our benefits package. Since we have been justified by faith, first thing, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, I know that because I'm now a child of God, I have things I never had before. We talked about what it means to be justified by faith. It means simply to be like Abraham. 
It means that in this new identity, you're no longer trusting in the things that you used to trust in. You are trusting in the promises of God. And the more you learn to trust in the promises of God, the more you learn to pray the promises of God. And by the way, when you pray the promises of God, God is obligated to hear you. One of the great promises of God is he says, I will take care of my children. Sometimes I say to the Lord, Lord, you promised to take care of me. I'm, I'm, I'm just claiming what you told me that you would do. Now, it may take some time. God may not show up. He's not a divine butler. I tell people all the time, prayer is not room service. It's a walkie-talkie. You're on the battlefield. And you're asking the commander and the general for help and support. How do you know you're trusting in the promises of God? Well, there are, there are three ways by which you can test whether you really do believe and have been justified by faith. Here's, here's what the text says. Since we have been justified by faith, the first result that you have, you and I have, we have peace with God. I just want to point out, peace with God is not a feeling. It's not, it's not, this, it's not this sense of everything's okay. You know what peace with God means? It means the war's over. <laughs> it, means, it means all that wrath that you found out about, that Paul told you about, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Right? That wrath is gone. You are no longer under the wrath of God. You, as I said before, you are his friend. You're more than that. You're his child. What does it mean to have peace with God? What does it mean? It's, it's God declaring, you are justified. You are, you, your guilt is gone. Your debt has been paid. The whole book of Romans is set up like a courtroom, isn't it? Especially those early chapters. And we're on trial. You know what it means to be justified? It means the judge says, not guilty. <laughs> and you need to remember that. Because you're going to want to bring back up your failures and your guilt. And you need to go back to the fact, this great truth, that, that no one can bring any charges against you, not even the evil one. So quickly, here's what it means. It means to have peace with God, no fear of God. Do you know why people use works to try to earn their salvation? Because they're afraid of God. They're afraid of God. And so, so they're trying to prove themselves to God. The wonderful thing about peace with God is there's no fear of God. Here's the next one. There's no fear of death. <laughs> there's no fear of death. I don't, I don't mean we have a death wish. <laughs> we don't go around going, can't wait to die. <laughs> but it means, here's what it means. Paul says it in Philippians. He says, for me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. And by the way, you, you can't put anything else in there. For me to live is money. <laughs> For me to live is success. See, the only thing you can put in there 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the only thing you could put in there. Here's another one. The peace with God means when the evil one, according to Ephesians 6, throws those thoughts at you, those, which, he, which he frames as fiery darts. You know what those are, right? Those are those doubts in your head. It'll, it'll show up like this. How could you do that? Because you're not going to be perfect. Sanctification is not perfection. Glorification is perfection. Sanctification is, is the war. It's the struggle. And, and by the way, the fruit of the Spirit comes off of the battlefield. <laughs> it's, it's when you're in the battle that the fruit of the Spirit is produced. And so peace, you can always go back to the peace of God when, when the evil one invades your thoughts with thoughts of unworthiness. And then, and then not only does the evil one attack you, your own conscience will attack you at times, right? I mean, your own feelings. Do you know what the opposite of rejoicing is? The opposite of rejoicing is shame. You know, what, you know what joy is? Joy is someone is glad to be with me. You know what shame is? No one wants to be with me. And we all feel that. We always, this is the self-condemnation that we feel. How could I do that? Could I do that? That's, this, is, this is where the peace of God comes in. When, when, you, when you have those fiery darts, when you're afraid of death, when you, when you think you should be afraid of God, or when you're condemning yourself, go back to this wonderful promise, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not only that, not only that, and by the way, I'm not going to read it, but if, if you read verses 6 through 10, which is part of our study this morning, you'll see that the reason Paul puts in 6 through 10, because he basically just reviews all that Christ has done for us. Why does he do that? It seems like he's backtracking. He's not backtracking. He's just reminding us that that even though we're in this process of sanctification, we're still going to struggle. And the only way to get out of that struggle is to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And, and, and here's, here's the summary. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if he loved you enough to justify you as a sinner, when you sin, even as a Christian, there's enough of his grace so that he can deliver you from that by faith, claiming in the promise that he has made. The second result is that we have access to continued grace. We have access to continued grace. Now, <laughs> here's a wonderful thing. The, the, the text says, um, go ahead. Uh, the text says, while we were... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Go back to verse 2 and 3. Through him we obtained access into this. There it is. Through him we have also obtained access. So here's, here's, here's what this means. It means whatever you're going through, whatever day you're in, whatever, whatever struggle you're facing, 
you have immediate access to grace. Have you learned that? Have you learned that when you're going through struggle, you can immediately come boldly before the throne of grace? Have, have you established that kind of interactive prayer life so that no matter what's going on in your life, you're taking full advantage that, that you now... Now think about it. Old Testament people in the tabernacle, in the temple, the one thing they couldn't do, they didn't have free access into the very presence of God. The only one that could do that was the high priest. You know what this is saying? All those doors have been broken down. The veil of the curtain has been ripped from top to bottom. And if you're a child of God, you can come in boldly before the throne of grace and say, I need help. I need forgiveness. I need your grace. You know what, you know what grace is? And I'm going to close with this. I told you I wasn't going to finish. That's okay, right? Is it Okay because I don't want to bypass this, because I have learned we need to learn to rejoice. But, but the wonderful thing about this is, do you know what grace, here's how I think of grace. You know what grace is? Grace is God's favor. <laughs> I want you to say to yourself, in your own head right now, I want you to say, God's favor is on me. Can you say that? God's favor is on me. Now remember, the evil one's going to attack that. The world is going to attack that. And even you are going to condemn yourself. And you need to remember, you know what? I failed right now. I didn't live up to my sanctification. I didn't live up to my purpose. But that doesn't change the fact that God's favor is upon me. God's favor is on me. And nothing can separate me from him. Not the demons, not the devils, not the world, not even my own weakness. I have access to the throne of grace. Andre Crouch <laughs> wrote a great song. It was called Through It All. You remember that? Listen to the third verse. He says, I thank God for the mountains and I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I never had a problem, I would never know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend 
upon his promises, his word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you, Lord, that we have peace. We have peace. We have a peace that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. And Lord, even when we would let go of it, you won't let us let go. So we thank you for that wonderful peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Lord, help us not just to acknowledge it and to know it with our reasoning, but help us to know it, Lord, deep in our relationship with you because we are your friend, and we're thrilled with that. Lord, we thank you also for the access that we have to your throne, that, that whether it's here, gathered together in this uh, assembly, this community of faith, whether we're all alone, whatever struggles we're going through, whatever joys, whatever sorrows, we have access to your throne, and that is a great, great privilege. And Lord, that's, that's all part of just being justified by faith. We thank you for this time. Thank you for this church so much. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, Jesus said an interesting thing in Luke chapter 22. He gathered the disciples together, right? And he knows what he's facing. It's, it's really clear in his head what, what's going to happen. He knows he's going to die. And, and listen to what he says as he gathers the disciples together. Listen to what he says. He says, what would you be thinking about? If, if, if you knew tomorrow you were going to die, what, what would you be thinking about? He gathers his disciples together, and, and here's what he says. He says, it is, it is with great desire that I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. We're going to talk about suffering next week. One, one of the keys of getting through trials is to be with people who want to be with you. That's, that's where joy comes from. That's, that's where your joy reservoir inside, you know. Most, think about this. Most people facing death would want to isolate themselves. I think there's kind of two kinds of people in the world that are, when you're sick, you either want to go into the room by yourself or you want everybody with you. I'm one of those people that I would just prefer to go into the room by myself, shut the door, and be left alone. But Jesus doesn't do that. He gathers them together and he says, he, says, he says, you are my great joy. I'm facing death. I'm prepared for it. But I want to be with you. Isn't that a marvelous thing? That, that Jesus' deepest desire, even facing the greatest trial, is that he wants to be with us. And, and not only that, in his greatest trial... He's willing to sacrifice himself for us. That's his great love. He took bread. Go ahead and prepare. Get that ready for yourself. Get your 
bread ready? He says, this unleavened bread, he says, he says, this is my body. This is my body. And, and what, is, what is this? Bread is a symbol of life. That's what bread is. Bread in Scripture symbolizes life. And, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, this bread represents my life. And I'm giving my life. And I'm taking your death. So, Paul instructs us, whenever you eat this bread, remember. This is to help us remember because we forget. Remember the words of Jesus. This is my body. You're, you're, symbolizing, you're symbolizing all of your debts being paid. You're symbolizing justification. You're symbolizing not guilty. You're symbolizing, when you take this, you're symbolizing that now you get my life and I get yours. And, and I have enough infinite grace and infinite power to overcome all of your sins. Take eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And then it says very specifically that after supper, he took a cup. As you said, he said this with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was a Passover meal. It's been extracted from the Passover. And at Passover, there are four cups. The one that comes after supper is called the cup of redemption. It's a, it's a picture of Israel being redeemed out of slavery out of bondage into freedom. And, and it was promised, it was promised that, that God would deliver his people. And furthermore, it was promised that God would then later, at some future point, he would actually write his law on their heart. And that was a picture of the, uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. It's called the New Covenant. And the new covenant means now that, that you have a whole new disposition <laughs> towards God. Before you were the enemy of God, now you are the friend of God. Before you wanted to do what you wanted to do, now you want to do what God wants you to do. It's a whole new disposition. It's the new covenant. And it's the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that Jesus drank when he, when he took away our sins. He says, this, is the, this, is the, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. As often as you drink it, remember me.
The new covenant guarantees the fact that you have that law of God written on your heart. It guarantees that you are the people of God. So that, so that the new covenant doesn't just work in sanctification. It's a promise that someday you'll get a whole new body. You'll lead, you'll lead the life that you were supposed to live. And the new covenant is sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week, just how that works in our life, how the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the peace that we have, the access that we have. We thank you, Lord, for the perfect life of Jesus Christ, for his shed blood, Again, Lord, we pray that we would celebrate, we would rejoice in this new identity. And then, Lord, that we would learn to rejoice in our sufferings. And then finally, Lord, that we would learn to rejoice in you and you alone. Strip away, Lord, strip away everything in us that would cause us to boast in anything except you. We boast in you, Lord, and we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.